Schöne Grüße von City Breaks. Hello, greetings from City Breaks. This is episode 11 of City Breaks Munich on the musical and literary connections in the city. Most people know of the Wagner connection. Uh, you may not know that Munich is also Germany's biggest publishing centre. And so in this episode, I'm going to have a look at some of the big figures from music and literature, people like Wagner and Mahler or the authors Thomas Mann and Heinrich Heine, who had Munich connections. A little bit about their story here, and ideas on where you can find traces of them in the city today. Many people are aware that Munich has a Wagner connection. The composer lived in the city. He premiered some of his best-known operas here. But first of all, it's with his friendship with the king, Ludwig II, which scandalised Munich society in the 1860s, that I would like to begin the episode. If you remember some of the details about Ludwig's fantasy life when he was a child, it won't surprise you to hear that he became absolutely obsessed with Wagner's operas. The legends of Tannhäuser and of Lohengrin, the Swan Knight, turned into operas by Wagner were really Ludwig's childhood fantasies brought to life with music and pictures and costumes. And the emphasis on German culture very much appealed to Ludwig too. One of Wagner's biographers, Ernest Newman, wrote the following, quote, even as a boy, Ludwig had a romantic vision of himself as king, leading the German people along ideal paths, and Wagner's writings simply happened to strike into that vision at the crucial time, and with tremendous impact. For his 14th birthday, Ludwig was given a rather strange, esoteric collection of presents which had a bit of a Wagner theme, so these included a painting of the Lohengrin mural on the dining room of his house, and what the author Greg King in his book The Mad King describes as, quote, another pair of swan cufflinks. Of course, Ludwig soon began agitating to actually be taken to the opera so he could see these wonderful works for himself. But mum and dad said no. It's rather strange for us these days to know that actually Wagner wasn't all that popular early on. So in 1841, for example, he sent one of his operas, The Fliegende Holländer, The Flying Dutchman, to the director of the Munich Opera, only to have it returned with a comment that it was, quote, unsuitable for the German theatre and the tastes of the German people. But he persisted and his operas were popular in other German cities and in the end, in 1855, they capitulated and Tannhäuser was performed. It wasn't until 1861 that Ludwig was finally allowed to go. He went to see a performance of Lohengrin, The Swan Knight. And I think we can agree that he was truly smitten right from the beginning. This is how Greg King describes his first visit to the theatre. Quote, he entered the royal box and sank into a gilded armchair. Within a few minutes, the intoxicating magic of Wagner's music began to surge through the theatre and his soul. The richly fringed curtains swept aside, revealing a world which Ludwig had only been able to imagine in his dreams. Lohengrin is the story of the tragic princess Elsa, who's badly treated by her evil guardian and eventually rescued by a swan knight, and of course they marry and hope to live happily ever after. But on the wedding night, disaster ensues. It becomes clear that the swan knight Lohengrin is actually a god and therefore can't have a relationship with a mere mortal and the mysterious swan boat in which he arrived reappears and takes him off forever. Ludwig is said to have been completely overwhelmed by the beauty and the tragedy of this story, and he thought to have absolutely identified himself with Lohengrin, the godlike figure who fails to find human happiness. And this obsession lasted his entire life. After he died, a costume of the swan knight was actually found amongst his personal effects. And as well as being obsessed with the tales and the music, 
and the costumes of Wagner's work, it wasn't long before Ludwig felt he really wanted to know the composer himself. And so they duly met, and in a letter to his cousin, Ludwig describes how he felt on one of their first meetings. Quote, I stooped down to him and drew him to my heart with a feeling that I was taking a silent oath to be faithful to him to the end of time. Wagner was very taken with Ludwig, although he too was struck by the otherworldliness of the king, writing, for example, quote, He is, sad to say, so beautiful, so gifted, so full of deep feeling and so wonderful that I fear his life must vanish like a fleeting, godlike dream in this crude world of ours. In the very same letter, he goes on to explain that Ludwig wants Wagner to be at his side forever. He wants to help him with his work, help him produce his operas. Prospect about which Wagner wrote, quote, He wants me to be always at his side, to work, to relax, to produce my operas. He will give me everything I need to this end. Oh, may he but live. It is an unbelievable miracle. Ludwig seemed equally happy with the prospect of getting very close to this wonderful man who produced all these things that he was madly in love with, writing, for example, quote, You have been the sole source of my happiness ever since I was a mere boy, my friend who spoke to my heart as no other did, my best teacher and educator. I will repay to you all that it is within my power, how I have waited for this moment. And repay him he certainly did. It's thought that Ludwig gave Wagner a total of 985,000 gulden, a figure that was actually three times his own annual income. This was in various forms. He paid rents, he gave him gifts and stipends, he financed his operas, he loaned him money, he rescued the Bayreuth Festspielhaus, so the Bayreuth Concert Hall, from financial disaster, that being where many of Wagner's operas were performed. And Wagner seemed to accept all this, almost as if it was his right. He said at one point, for example, quote, I cannot live like a dog when I am working, nor can I sleep on straw and swill cheap liquor. I must be coaxed one way or the other if I am to accomplish the horribly difficult task of creating a non-existent world. Perhaps inevitably it ended rather badly. There was a particularly violent quarrel after an evening when Wagner had referred to the king as mein Junge, my boy stressing that how much older and wiser he was and not showing deference to the king in a way that Ludwig felt he really deserved. One day, shock horror, Wagner went to see the king and was turned away, and he describes it like this, quote, A most terrible thing happened to me. I was turned away from the door of my august friend, having appeared there at his kind invitation, and was led back down to the courtyard. It was not my king's indisposition, but his great displeasure with me, which was adduced as the reason for this rebuff. Wagner began issuing threats about making the quarrel public, which Ludwig was horrified about, and he started writing him letters saying to Wagner things like, quote, My love for you will remain loyal unto death. This I know you will never doubt. After this, Wagner would write back and say things like, Well, shall I go or shall I remain? Your will is mine which, of course, made Ludwig write back hurriedly and say, no, 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 please stay. And Wagner's reply to that was in three words, quote, I live again. But the very intense phase of their friendship did come to an end, partly because of quarrels like these, and partly because Wagner disgraced himself by having an affair with the wife of the conductor at the opera house and was pretty much forced to withdraw from Munich and go and live somewhere else. He took himself off to Switzerland first, and Ludwig did visit him there a few times, but things were never really quite the same again. Some of the other very famous works that Wagner wrote and had performed in Munich would include the opera Tannhäuser, 
which is another story based on a medieval German legend, also with a medieval princess in a castle being rescued by a knight, so all of this very much up Ludwig's street. In 1868, his opera Die Meistersinger von Nuremberg was premiered at the Court Theatre in Munich. It was actually going to be performed first in Nuremberg, which you'd think would be fitting, but Ludwig insisted that it should be performed first in Munich. Again, another knight wooing the hand of the Lady Eva in a song contest. But given what we know about what came in the next century in Munich, there's also a rather unsettling element to the idea behind the musical. Here's Greg King, author of The Mad King, on this topic. Quote, it encompassed the idea of the folk or the German national identity containing physical, spiritual and artistic aspirations. According to Meistersinger, in German art, the Teutonic peoples could be unified and with their culture triumph over other races. These sentiments and the final words of the character actor Hans Sachs in praise of German art and a chorus trumpeting holy German ideals made Meistersinger not only a call to national unity but also a denunciation of foreign influence and culture. That makes us clearly understand how it is that Hitler came to so admire Wagner, because he thought Wagner's music really embodied all things German. The opera premiered on the 21st of June, 1868, at the Hoftheater. Complete sellout. People, some of Wagner's friends, came from all across Europe to fill up the seats, and, of course, Ludwig II sat in the royal box. It turned into an evening which became quite scandalous. The reason for that was that when Wagner bowed to the royal box, Ludwig motioned to him to come up and sit in it and take a seat beside him, something that was completely unheard of. Even members of his own family weren't allowed to sit in the box with him, but Wagner apparently was. And things got worse at the end of the second act when the crowds were cheering so much that Ludwig encouraged Wagner to stand up and bow to them and the sight of a commoner taking ovations from the royal box was truly shocking to Munich's public. Wagner certainly wasn't popular with everyone in Munich. People used to call him Lolus as a nickname, that being a reference to Lola Montez. She, through her affair with Ludwig I, had made the most of her royal connections, and the nickname implied that Wagner was doing the very same thing with the next generation of royalty. And in fact, it wasn't many months after this premiere that he left the city and pretty much didn't come back. For a decade or two after about 1890, Munich became a real centre for art and music and literature. It was the period known as the Golden Age. In 1890, there were four theatres in the city, including the Hoftheater and the Residenz. By 1910, there were four more. The Deutsche Theater had been added and the Münchner Schauspielhaus, all of this showing that the theatre-going public had plenty of money to spend. There was a café culture in the city running alongside, so the cafés and the coffee houses became haunts for the artists and writers of the day. They would congregate there often to listen to entertainment. There were lots of bars where musicians played, places like the Wiener Café Stefanie and the Café Luitpold, named of course after the Prince Regent. And there are two places in the city today where you can really get a glimpse of the Golden Age. They're both linked to popular Munich characters from the time, those being the comedian Karl Valentin and the puppet master Josef Schmidt. I've seen Karl Valentin described as, quote, a unique piece of Munich's cabaret and burlesque history. Karl Valentin was and is considered in Munich as a universal genius. He was many things. He was a comedian, a playwright, an actor, a filmmaker in the early days of filming, and a folk singer. 
who made countless appearances in cabaret in the city and was really hugely popular with his audiences, this being from about 1910 onwards. He was praised by the critics as being a Wurzerklabra, so someone who could tear words apart and reuse language to make it amusing, much of this in the Bavarian dialect. He performed all over the city, often in the beer halls. He was watched, for example, by the author Bertolt Brecht, who described him as being very much like Charlie Chaplin. And there is a statue to him today in the heart of Munich in the Viktualienmarkt. But perhaps a better place to remember him is a museum, a little museum called the Valentin Karlstadt Museum, which is in one of the towers of the Isar Tor, so one of the ancient city gates. And you get a flavour of the place when you find out that on the door it says 99-year-olds and their parents get in free. It's full of really quite crazy exhibits, so things like a clock which has been running backwards since 1959, a toothpick which is billed as for use in winter because it's fur-trimmed, a little machine that will help you, quote, read between the lines, an exhibit labelled, quote, a drop of government employees' sweat, very rare, a display of melted plastic snow, and a clock which gives you, quote, yesterday's exact time. There are posters from his heyday, masks and props, and a little cinema where you can actually see some of the films that he made. Equally a Munich character was Josef Schmidt, known as Papa Schmidt, who founded the Puppet Theatre in Munich. It actually dates from 1852, but it moved to its current home near the Zenlinger Tor in 1900, so right in the middle of the Golden Age. Papa Schmidt had noted that slapstick puppet theatres were very popular at things like carnivals, and he decided he wanted to take it a little further and use puppet theatres to educate children. And so he went to the lengths of having a theatre built especially for this purpose. The one that the Puppet Theatre moved to in 1900 is still there. It was, in fact, the world's first permanent building for puppet shows. And it still works today. You can see marionettes there, you can see stick puppets, you can see glove puppets. Most of the performances are aimed at everyone from age four upwards. They have titles like The Kinderkrimi, which means children's detective, which is called Ein Fall für Felix der Spürnase, which would roughly translate as A Case for Felix the... Detective Dog, something like that. At Christmas there are shows like Teddy's Großes Weihnachtsabenteuer, Teddy's Great Christmas Adventure, and a sad-sounding one called Der Verschwundener Wunschzettel, The Lost Letter to Father Christmas. But they do do performances aimed at adults as well. Some of the operas, for example, you could see Die Zauberflöte, The Magic Flute, all done by puppets, which might be a charming way to get into some German culture. Going back to classical musicians, there are two other very famous ones associated with the city, Gustav Mahler and Richard Strauss, for both of whom you can find little traces if you know where to look. Today's Munich Philharmonic Orchestra is a direct descendant of the orchestra which premiered some of Mahler's works in Munich, the most famous one being a concert which took place in 1910 in the Musikfesthalle and was a premiere of Mahler's Symphony No. 8 in E-flat major made a huge impact at the time. It's one of the largest scale choral works that's ever been written. It's believed to have been performed by something like 860 singers with a 170-piece orchestra. The promoter hired the Neue Musikfesthalle, a building which is now part of the Deutsches Museum, which had a capacity of 3,200 seats. And so, in order to try and sell all these tickets, he began to call the, the new symphony the Symphony of a Thousand, implying that a thousand people would be taking part, which actually, given the numbers I've just quoted you, isn't far from the truth. Mahler was said to have disapproved of this name. 
think he thought it was a bit too populist, but in fact it has stuck and the symphony is still today known as the Symphony of a Thousand. On the night, it was conducted by Mahler himself and there were famous people in the audience, such as the composer Richard Strauss and the French composer Sanson, famous writers like Thomas Mann. And it was an absolute huge success. The final chords died away, there was a little pause, and then there was massive applause, which lasted for 20 minutes. On that evening, Mahler received a letter of congratulation from Thomas Mann, who told him that he thought Mahler was, quote, the man who expresses the art of our time in its profoundest and most sacred form. That work and some of Mahler's other works have been a core part of the Munich Philharmonic's core repertoire ever since, with the exception, of course, of the Nazi period, the 1930s up until 1945, because Mahler, of course, was Jewish. In fact, that's why he ended up in Munich. He'd actually fled from Vienna, where anti-Semitism had already taken root, believing, how ironic is that, that he would be safer in Munich. And today, if you look at the concert programme for any of Munich's big orchestras, I'm pretty sure you'll find some Mahler on there somewhere in the season. The composer Richard Strauss was actually born in Munich in 1864, where his father, Franz Strauss, was a horn player at the court opera. He too was one of the best-known personalities of the Golden Age and on into the 20th century. He was best known for reviving opera and for musical works and his most celebrated work could probably be said to be the opera Salome. If you go along to Neuhauser Strasse, which is just near the Michaelskirche, you'll find a Richard Strauss fountain placed there to commemorate him and which is in fact a tribute to the opera Salome. It's a large, six metre high in fact, bronze column with sections of the story carved out in relief around the base. And the designer was hoping that the water that falls from it would look like a wet veil and therefore portray the final dance in the opera, which became one of Strauss's very best-known pieces, a dance called The Dance of the Seven Veils. Munich's on the itinerary for music lovers from all over the world, and that will be one of the things they make a point of going to see. So, thinking about music in the Munich of today, what can you find and where? Perhaps we should start not with the opera, but with something else. The folk music, which is known all over Bavaria, and particularly something, a Bavarian tradition called the Blaskapelle, which really, Blasen is the verb to blow, so it really translates as wind band, although I've seen in guidebooks they often call them umpa bands. Many Bavarian towns and even villages have their own brass band, their own Blaskapelle, and there are plenty of places in Munich where you might see them too. Places like the Viktualienmarkt or the beer gardens. And of course, absolutely definitely at the Oktoberfest. There's a bit of a specialism in drinking songs. Things with titles like Ein Prosit der Gemütlichkeit. So cheers to having a good time. Cheers to conviviality. Or another famous one that dates from 1935 and is called Steht ein Hofbräuhaus. So there is a Hofbräuhaus. A rather scary reference to the well-known beer hall in which Hitler made his speeches. And that one has a very rousing chorus, which goes something like Eins, zwei, gesufa, which means something like one, two, slug it down. I noticed in the Lonely Planet Guide a nice little description of Bavarian folk music, which refers to it as follows, quote, A dance involving plenty of hopping and stomping. Men sometimes slap themselves on their knees on what is called platteln. Typical instruments are the accordion and the zither, and some songs end in a yodel. 
That's all very traditional, of course, and The Lonely Planet goes on to explain that there are these days lots of crossovers, Bavarian folk music mixed with all kinds of other things like rock or punk, in a movement apparently known as the Alpine New Wave. But of course, as in all the major German cities, there's plenty of wonderful classical music on offer as well, not least from the Bayerische Staatsoper, so the Bavarian State Opera, a company which perform regularly to sell out crowds at the Nationaltheater on Max Josef Platz, and where you can expect to enjoy lots of Mozart and Strauss and Wagner. The opera company also hosts in July every year something called the Opernfestspiele, so the opera festival, which is a month of concerts and events all over the city, lots of venues, and with lots of musical talent from across the world as well as just from Germany. The Nationaltheater was the scene of many of Wagner premieres and concerts, but in fact the building you're looking at today isn't the one in which these actually happened because that had to be rebuilt after World War II. If you go there today, what you can expect is five layers of balcony all decked out in royal gold and purple, so truly a sumptuous sight. Munich has other very well-known orchestras as well, such as the Münchner Philharmonica, so the Munich Philharmonic, and something called the BR Symphonie Orchestra, BR, I think, stands for Bayerischer Rundfunk, the radio station, so it's kind of the Bavarian version of the BBC. The Deutsches Theater today is a venue for lots of musicals and shows. Yet more opera is often on display at the Prinz Regenten Theater. And every other year, there's a music theater festival called the Munich Biennale. And in addition to all of that, there's also the Königsplatz Open Air Festival, also in July, at which many classical events are put on, and in fact also some rock and some pop. Turning to literature, I think I mentioned in the introduction that Munich is Germany's biggest publishing centre, so it very much is a literary city. And one place where you can get a little glimpse of that is a strange building known as the Monacensia, which is on Maria Theresienstrasse, which builds itself as Munich's literary memory. It's an archive, really, or a library. It's got the material from 250 writers and artists who are connected to Munich and Bavaria. And there's a reading room in which you can sit and enjoy some of these things if you have any German. If you don't, never fear, they also have 30,000 photographs on file illustrating the lives and works of Munich personalities from art and literature. And I'd like to finish the episode by just detailing a few of the authors who have connections to Munich. Two that I'd like to mention briefly are the poet Rainer Maria Rilke, who was actually born in Prague but came to Munich to study and stayed on and lived and worked in Schwabing. His dates are 1875 to 1926. And perhaps better known in England, the author Erich Kessner, who was born in 1899, died in 1974 and is buried in the Borgenhauser Cemetery in Munich. He's known to us mainly as the author of that wonderful children's book, or series rather, Emile und die Detektive, Emile and the Detectives. But that wasn't his entire writing life. He was a satirist, a poet, a novelist. He wasn't born in Munich either, but he was living in Berlin at the time of the book burning in the 1930s, and that prompted him to leave. Not because he was Jewish, but actually because he was in one of the other categories of which the Nazis very much disapproved, and that was a pacifist. The Jewish author Heinrich Heine lived in Munich. He was born in 1797 and died in 1856, and so it's quite creepy to hear one of his most famous quotations, which reads like this, quote, Where books are burned, they will ultimately also burn human beings. Heine was the romantic poet, he was an essayist, 
And the most common place to find his work today, in fact, is in the songs by Schumann and Schubert, because they set to music many of his poems. So if you've ever read a Schubert songbook or been to a concert where somebody's singing from one, you very possibly have heard some Heinrich Heine without knowing it. He too spent a period living in Munich, and for that reason, and I think probably more particularly also because of the quote, which turned out, although he said it a hundred years before books were actually burnt in Germany by the Nazis, turned out to be so prophetic. For both those reasons, there's a statue to Heinrich Heine in Munich in a little place known as the Dichtergarten, Poet's Garden, which is between the Hofgarten and the Englischer Garten, quite near to Odeonsplatz. So if you're wandering through there, do stop and have a look and remember his quote, Dort, wo man Bücher verbrennt, there where they burn books, verbrennt man auch am Ende Menschen. They will ultimately also burn people. Written apparently in 1823, exactly 110 years before the famous Nazi book burning episode, followed of course by the murder by burning of so many people. Heine himself was Jewish and his books were on the list of those burnt by the Nazis, even though they were a hundred years old or more. And lastly then, probably the most famous author with any connection to Munich, Thomas Mann. He wasn't a Münchener by birth, he originated from North Germany, he was born in Lübeck, but he wrote all his major works while living in Munich. He'd studied at the university, and I think he probably came south to do that and never left, or rather, didn't leave for decades. In 1901, one of his most famous novels, Budden Books, which is a family saga set in North Germany, was published. It sold over a million copies and was also on the list of books burnt by the Nazis 30 years later. He was a prolific author, so I'll just mention one or two more of his books. In 1911, he wrote Taught in Venedig, Death in Venice, which you may know in film form, even if you haven't read it, and in which the starting point for the journey of the elderly man who takes off to Venice where he meets his death is Munich. And then in 1924, he published his other most well-known novel, Der Zauberberg, The Magic Mountain. And that was followed a few years later in 1929 by his receiving the Nobel Prize for Literature. Thomas Mann was also Jewish and so also, in the end, had to leave the city where he'd written all his best work. In the 1920s, he was a staunch supporter of the Weimar Republic, but by 1933, when Hitler came to power, it had become very clear that he was no longer welcome. He left and never returned. There's a house known as the Thomas Mann Villa in Poschingerstrasse. It's not actually open to the public, but if you're passing that way, you might like to have a look. It's the house that he built with the money he made from Buddenbrooks and Death in Venice, and the house which in 1933 he abandoned when he fled the city. It was taken over by the SS and used, would you believe, as a maternity home. There's one quirky thing associated with this house, which in fact you can see when you're in Munich, although it's not actually here, and it is, wait for it, a large stuffed brown bear. It's a Siberian brown bear, no less, which was given to the Mann family as a wedding present from a Russian friend and which became a sort of pet and mascot and went with them most of the places they went until they fled Munich in 1933. You can see it today in a building called the Literaturhaus, the House of Literature, which is on Salvatorplatz in Munich. If you take the lift up to the third floor and step out, there it is greeting you with its bared fangs. The bear had lived in Thomas Mann's villa at Poschingerstrasse at a time when it was already well known, because in fact it had featured in his novel Buddenbrooks. 
but sadly it got left behind when the man's fled in 1933. It was passed around to various people and eventually donated to the Literaturhaus, where it's now on permanent loan. And as a second aside, just up the road from Thomas Mann's house is another building, and a street in fact named after his older brother Heinrich, so Heinrich Mannstrasse. He too had lived in Munich and left in 1933 for all the same reasons. He'd gone into print criticising the authorities, which was dangerous enough without being a Jew, but since he was, he was forced to flee. He's not really very well known in English-speaking literature these days, except for one novel, something called Professor Unrat, so Professor Nonsense, something like that, which you may not have heard of, but which was adapted into a very famous film that you probably have heard of, known as Der Blaue Engel, The Blue Angel, starring, of course, Marlene Dietrich, somebody else who fled Germany in the 1930s, of course. So there we have it. I hope I've given you a flavour of some of the grand musical and literary history of Munich and a few ideas about where to go and remember some of that, should that be your wish. If you don't speak German, it can be quite difficult to get into that side of German culture, but hopefully I've given you a few pointers. So, next up will be an episode which I'm going to call Sport in Munich, when we'll have a look at some of the events in the city's history that are connected to sports, particularly football and athletics, and an idea of one or two places in Munich where you can look at that history. So, for example, the Allianz Stadium, with its links to two of Munich's most well-known football teams, both of which have a long history, and the Olympia Park, linked, of course, to the 1972 Olympics. So, all of that to come, but for the moment, it just remains for me to sign out, to thank you very much for listening. Vielen Dank and to hope that you will indeed be able to join me for next week's episode on Sport in München. Goodbye then. Auf Wiederhören. <laughs>